Today's Dhamma talk is entitled Satipatthana Part 3, and uh, we shall uh, continue where we left off uh, last night, namely um, on protection. And uh, we have dealt uh, with uh, the first certain kind of protection, namely atanamarakanto paramarakati, which means protecting oneself, one protects others, and this basically boils down to wisdom. And the second part is paramarakanto atanamarakati, which means by protecting others, one is protected, one protects oneself. And protection of uh, others happens uh, through the cultivation of social virtues such as patience and uh, endurance and forgiveness, harmlessness, loving kindness, and uh, compassion. And... uh, this, in essence, uh, is compassion. And when we protect others by being patient with their you know, shortcomings, and of course nobody you know, except for the Buddha is uh, perfect, then uh, others will appreciate this and uh, they will reciprocate. And when we you know, protect others you know, through harmlessness in, in our dealings you know, with others, so, you know, we are not acting you know, in a violent way, neither directly nor you know, indirectly, then others will appreciate so, you know, this and so they might you know, reciprocate. And then, you know, again, when we deal with others out of a spirit of loving-kindness, wishing for the other person's welfare and happiness, and expressing this both, or expressing it physically, verbally, and mentally, then this will not go unnoticed. And the other person then may respond in kind. And when we see you know, the suffering of another person and we you know, are you know, struck by you know, this, touched by this, then we will want to help. And so when we actually give uh, the helping hand, you know, then this too, again, will be appreciated by others. And what do you think? How will others uh, reciprocate you know, towards our way of protecting them, if they reciprocate at all. (laughs) The same way. Uh, Can you be more specific? By me, me? Oh, oh, they will be protective of us. Yes, okay, good. And uh, 
Yeah, so protection will be there. We you know, enjoy their you know, protection. And so you know, what about certain you know, friendship? You know, will we you know, gain their friendship? Most likely, you know, yes. And so most likely we will gain their you know, appreciation and so, you know, even respect, so help, advice. However, when we protect certain uh, others, you know, then we should not expect anything in you know, return. And so it does happen in life, uh, actually not, so, or, or, you know, yeah, you know, sometimes, that so we do you know, something good towards another person, and yet we're not receiving anything uh, in return. And that's okay, you know, but maybe some other person has uh, a kind heart and uh, will show one form or another of uh, friendship, appreciation, and so on. Now, to give you a practical example for this protecting others, one, or by protecting others, one protects uh, oneself. Namely, an example from Lumbini itself, the birthplace of uh, the Buddha, the pilgrimage site uh, that is uh, um, developing or has developed uh, you know, substantially within the last uh, you know, 10 years after, you know, well, decades and uh, you know, centuries of uh, neglect. And uh, the monastic uh, community in the Buddhist monastic community in Lumbini is uh, rather small in number. And if we count, if we add the lay lay Buddhists in the area, then the total number will probably not exceed 400. And just imagine that the people living in Lumbini itself are surrounded by a majority of Hindus and Muslims. So the Buddhists are really an outstanding minority. Now, uh, being a minority, we have to be very careful. And in particular, living in a foreign country. Anything can happen. And actually, as a matter of fact, there have been a number of occasions within the last uh, 10 years or so where things uh, got somewhat uh, critical. And and a policy that uh, we have consciously adopted in Lumbini was to identify the needs of the local population and then to protect them, to help them as much as possible. And this has taken place through a number of social activities such as uh, the construction of a footbridge uh, across a river for a number of uh, villages who otherwise had no way of uh, crossing this uh, particular Taylor River and in particular during the rainy season. So when it rains there, sometimes two, three days non-stop, then the rivers fill up with water and uh, with no bridge around, the elderly, the sick, pregnant uh, women and so on had no other way of crossing uh, except for swimming across. 
And so, you know, if you're sick, you don't want to swim across <laughs> uh, well, uh, a river you know, that has a strong current. And indeed, uh, in the past, people have died uh, you know, this way. So this was one uh, you know, whole social uh, activity, activity, one uh, you know, project. And uh, then uh, other projects include, you know, for instance, you know, the provision of or providing you know, the poorest families from you know, the nearby villages you know, with uh, you know, basic you know, foods or staples like rice and uh, you know, some grains, a certain amount uh, you know, every you know, week or two, you know, per you know, family. And then in the winter, when it gets uh, you know, quite uh, relatively cold, uh, and so one considers then you know, many of uh, the you know, locals or the poor you know, local population don't even have a blanket to cover themselves against the you know, cold. You know, then you know, the distribution of blankets, of course, uh, is uh, you know, the appropriate thing to do. And in the same a weight, you know, sweaters have been distributed in so like our monastery, the Panditarama Lumbini. On one occasion, we you know, went you know, to a shop in Bairo you know, at the nearby village or town and got you know, entire sets of beddings, including mattress and uh, you know, then bed sheet and uh, uh, cover and uh, you know, then a thick, uh, you know, uh, well, a thick you know, cover. Um, and so on, and so, and then on top of uh, you know, this, there's one you know, monastic Nepali monastic who's uh, you know, very strong on you know, social activities, and uh, he's running you know, well you know, basic uh, hygiene programs, basic health programs, providing villages with uh, you know, some drinking water by installing. You know, water hand uh, water palms and assuring that the you know, you know, the wastewater gets uh, you know, channeled away you know, properly and uh, then there he runs literacy you know, classes and so on and so forth there's a number of other things that I have no time you know, to mention and these uh, you know, programs are you know, being or these activities are being you know, run uh, irrespective of uh, the domination of the recipients. Whether they are Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims, it doesn't matter anyone who is poor or is sick or so, or even children from a poor family who can't afford the the school fees. And we've provided plenty of scholarships, over over 100 every year. And so this then has very much over the years helped to create a positive relationship with the local population. And in turn, the Buddhist community in Lumbini itself has been protected. And over over 10 years of Maoist insurgency in Nepal, Unfortunately, nothing major happened within Lumbini itself. So 
even though the country as a whole was uh, at conflict in, so, with bomb explosions and so, uh, plenty of uh, unwanted you know, events going on, Lumbini was you know, something like uh, an island of peace in the ocean of uh, violence. And uh, this uh, then serves uh, as an explanation or as an example how by protecting others with good qualities one uh, then gains protection uh, in uh, return. And if you don't believe it then, well, try yourself in your daily life. Now, the Buddha himself was the perfect manifestation of uh, these of two essential values: one being compassion, and the other one being wisdom. And it was the Buddha himself who, out of wisdom, uh, protected himself, and thus certainly others were protected, and out of great compassion uh, by protecting others that he gained protection in uh, return. Now, to give you the original passage from uh, the Samyutta Nikaya, and I'll uh, quote, Once the Blessed One dwelt in the Sumba country in a town of the Sumba people called Siddhaka. There he addressed the monks as, as follows. Long ago, there lived an acrobat who worked with a bamboo pole. Putting up his bamboo pole, he spoke to his apprentice, Medakatalika, come dear Medakatalika, climb the pole and certainly stand on my shoulders. Yes, master, said the apprentice, and did as told. And the acrobat said, now dear Medakatalika, protect me well and I shall protect you. Thus, watching over each other, protecting each other, we shall show our skill, earn some money, and shall safely get down from the bamboo pole. But, Midakatalika, the apprentice said, Not so, master. You, O master, should protect yourself, and I, too, shall protect myself. So, self-guarded, self-protected, we shall show our skill, earn some money, and shall safely get down from the bamboo pole. This is... The right way, said the Blessed One, and spoke further as follows. It is just as the apprentice said, I shall protect myself in that way. The establishments of mindfulness should be practiced. And so so that is the answer to the question asked yesterday. However, the Buddha immediately goes on to say, I shall protect others. In that way, the establishments of mindfulness should be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And then the Buddha goes on to explain both of these and he says and how does one in protecting oneself protect others and the answer given is by the repeated and frequent practice of meditation so most likely 
you know, this Satipatthana meditation, the establishment of mindfulness. And how does one, in protecting others, protect uh, oneself? And the answer given is by patience and uh, forbearance, which is uh, kanti in the Pali scripture language, uh, by a non-violent and harmless life, so abuihimsa, and uh, by loving kindness and compassion. And then the Bodhatna summarizes what what he has said so far, and uh, by mentioning, I shall protect myself, In that way, the establishments of mindfulness should be practiced. I shall protect others in that way. The establishments of mindfulness should be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So the question then arises, how come or how do values like or qualities like patience and forbearance, non-violent and harmless life and loving kindness and compassion arise out of the practice of the establishments of mindfulness. Isn't it that the establishment of mindfulness leads... uh, to concentration, to mindfulness, to concentration and wisdom? Uh, Yes, but, well, it also leads uh, to the arising of these qualities. And see, the amazing thing about uh, our Satipatthana meditation practice is that um, even though we're practicing towards the you know, development of wisdom and you know, then ultimately the attainment of path and fruition knowledge, yet in the course of this meditation practice, a number of other values also or other qualities also arise in the mind. And this happens quite naturally, quite you know, automatically. And so, to give you an example for this, a meditator who is uh, you know, practicing you know, mindfulness, <coughs> sorry. Uh, when you know, then you know, reaching some of the higher insight knowledges, will you know, find um, at, a, at a certain point that all of a sudden the mind fills with a tremendous amount of loving kindness. And the loving kindness just uh, springs forth. You know, there's no, no no particular intentional you know, loving kindness meditation being you know, done. It just grows out of uh, the practice. And the reason for this is that you know, the mindfulness is getting sharper and sharper, more and more continues. The unwholesome mental states subside, and in the absence of the unwholesome mental states. The wholesome mental states have a chance to arise and uh, loving-kindness is one of them and compassion is uh, another one of them. And when, uh, when we do undertake this meditation practice, well, you know, we have to deal with plenty of pains and aches and plenty of difficult mental states. And so, you know, so facing them again and again will develop patience. 
And even if a meditator at the outset of his or her practice didn't have much patience you know, to you know, start with, yet over time, as we meditate gradually, patience develops and it becomes stronger and certainly stronger. It becomes even, um, well, uh, well, a strength you know, that we can rely uh, on, on in our uh, life in general. And so, as we meditate, uh, we uh, gradually, well, everything becomes more and more refined, so our mind becomes more refined, our physical and verbal behavior also becomes more refined, and uh, you know, thus, and compassion will be there, and thus, we you know, no longer, uh, we can no longer bear the uh, well, the harm, intentional harming of uh, other uh, beings, and it's not uncommon to hear the meditators say, "Well, before I started uh, intensive practice, I used to swat the mosquitoes or gadflies as they kept uh, approaching, happily even, and." Uh, you know, sometimes even counting the number of uh, their casualties, and uh, yeah, but then yeah, with intensive practice, you know, this changes, and uh, one can no longer bear you know, you know, the, you know, the death of a single one of those uh, flies or mosquitoes. And so, you know, in the meditation practice, things do change. You know, towards uh, you know, the better, the more we practice, the clearer all of this uh, becomes. So indeed, when the Buddha says by protecting others, one is protecting oneself, you know, this, you know, you know, this is or there is a connection you know, with the, or, or to you know, the establishment of uh, mindfulness. Now, this much as a you know, leftover from, you know, from yesterday, from yesterday's talk, and now you know, we shall you know, continue with uh, a, well, a different topic, but still under you know, the heading of uh, Satipatthana. And, so, and now our topic you know, will be well, mindfulness, uh, you know, mindfulness in the light of, uh, um, or, or you know, wandering mind in the light of uh, mindfulness. Now, among beginning meditators, when one you know, listens to their you know, you know, reports during interview, one finds uh, you know, well descriptions on you know, the you know, rising and falling movement of the abdomen, maybe a pain here, pain there, and so, uh, maybe some, also some other you know, you know, sensations somewhere in the body. And then uh, among the mental states mentioned first, comes usually, you know, well, the wandering mind. And so, so only a few hours into a retreat, meditators usually already realize you know, the presence of uh, a fair amount of uh, wandering mind. Another you know, mental state that tends to be quite predominant during the first few days of a retreat is which mental state? Sloth and torpor. The aversion comes slightly later, you know, later on. 
and certainly so wandering mind and certainly sloth and torpor these are the major events and since wandering mind is certainly going to accompany us for quite some time we might as well be well familiar with it and uh, do you have an idea when the uh, wandering mind uh, actually ceases? Wandering mind in the sense of, uh, you know, you know, well, just uh, some, some you know, uh, irrelevant you know, thought arising, unrelated to thought arising. When does this happen? When does this end? Never. With maga. Oh, never. <laughs> You're saying never. Oh, <laughs> this is bleak. <laughs> Find me? When there's mindfulness. Well, uh, what you're saying is good. On a temporary basis, yes. When mindfulness is present, then the wandering mind will be absent. And your answer is also current, well, almost correct, or close to being uh, correct. Um, restlessness, which uh, contributes to you know, wandering mind to a great extent, you know, gets uprooted from the stream of consciousness only with the attainment of arahanship, which is the last and final attainment. So, rest assured to work with the wandering mind until quite some time. (laughs) And... Now, when it comes to wandering mind, since it is so prevalent, it's worth investigating it and uh, knowing the different kinds of wandering mind that are around. And then what this wandering mind does in our meditation practice, whether it's really a helpful factor to develop wisdom or not, and uh, what are the causes for wandering mind and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, what means mindfulness regarding wandering mind. So, now, wandering mind has its, or thinking, has its place in life. Namely, in the field of education, we do need to think And when we're on the job, we need to think. At home, we need to do some planning. We need to uh, organize what we're going to do next. And so, so, wondering, uh, sorry, thinking is necessary during our worldly life. However, during intensive meditation practice, what should we do? Welcome the wandering mind and huh? abandon. abandon it. Yes, uh, no, this is correct. And so the Venerable Mahasi side of uh, Myanmar you know, went as far as uh, saying uh, that you know, wandering mind or thinking is a great hindrance to progress on uh, the path towards uh, Nibbana. And uh, he had uh, uh, well, many reasons uh, for uh, saying this. Now, when we are observing an, a, pre- a predominant object like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen or some pain or some other you know, bodily object, 
then at first uh, we can observe this object quite nicely, and then as the thinking comes in, we find that uh, the observation is getting somewhat difficult. And so basically what's happening is, on the one hand side there is the object of observation, then on the other hand there's the observing and the knowing mind, and the thinking is coming kind of in between. And so it kind of disturbs the observation of what's going on. And thus a clear... Now, a clear perception, a clear observation, and a clear knowledge of uh, the nature of the objects uh, becomes uh, impaired. And it is uh, mostly for this that, or for this reason, that uh, meditators are encouraged to abandon the wandering mind as quickly as possible. Now, there are many kinds of wandering mind or thinking around. And just to mention a few. Well, there are thoughts relating to the future. There are thoughts relating to the past. And then we have the so-called trains of thoughts, meaning one thought arises and uh, it seems somewhat intriguing and then it leads to another thought and another thought, another thought and uh, without noticing five minutes or ten minutes go by and we're totally lost in these uh, thoughts. And and then we have uh, another phenomenon in the context of thinking, namely the so-called obsessive thoughts. And um, are these frequent or not? Must be. Must be. These are actually quite quite frequent. And we may think that uh, our thinking is all all logical and very effective uh, and so on. Yet, when we meditate, we find this is not necessarily the case. And the mind is going around in, uh, or is going around and around in turns and uh, uh, thinking about the same topic over and over and over again. He or she said to me yesterday this or that. And why did the person say this? Did he or she say this in order to offend me? Or (laughs) what am I going to say in return? Oh, I cannot tolerate this statement. And so on. And there are worse kinds of obsessive thoughts occurring. Now... As indicated, when we start meditating, and even though we may be holding a PhD, yet we find that our thinking uh, at times is quite chaotic, quite illogical. 
And uh, oftentimes there is no connection between the first of thought and the next of thought. And there have been meditators upon realizing this nature of thinking or of the mind who were rather disappointed uh, with uh, themselves. And so... Well, the disappointment is uh, is uh, well is uh, uh, is okay. Um, the good news is that one can do something about the whole situation, and uh, kindly over, or or you know, then over time, one can shape uh, one's uh, thinking. Now, <clears throat> then we have another kind of uh, you know, thinking that uh, arises in association with objects seen and certain sounds heard and sense smelt and certain then taste known and tactile formations felt and then finally also in connection with mental states or mental objects. So what happens is, upon seeing a certain uh, visible object and uh, in the absence of uh, restraint of the senses, the mind uh, immediately jumps onto the object seen and immediately it starts doing what? Yes, it thinks in associations. So associative things or associative thinking comes up, and it's not necessarily related to the original object anymore. And to give you an example for this, upon seeing a rose somewhere in a garden, one looks at it. And then the thought might arise, oh, what a beautiful rose, and what kind of a rose is it? What's the botanical specification? And uh, I've seen a rose like this in you know, five years ago in you know, some public garden in Vienna, Austria. So what has the rose seen in the public garden in Vienna, Austria, to do with the rose that I'm seeing right in front of me? Nothing, of course. You know? But that's just the way the mind works. It does these um, new things all the time. And so, so we have to, when, when this associative thinking occurs, then we have to be very careful, we have to be, our mindfulness needs to be really sharp so that we can prevent it in the first place. So if mindfulness is present, then these associative thoughts cannot certainly come in. Now, when we meditate and we go through the different insight knowledges, step by step, one by one, we'll come across various kinds of thoughts that are somewhat connected to the insight knowledge. And so, for instance, during the first insight knowledge, it's not so uncommon among meditators, in particular when doubt, the mental state of doubt, arises in the practice, that naturally it will lead to doubting thoughts. 
So doubting the Buddha, doubting the Dhamma, doubting the Sangha, doubting the practice of the meditation, and worst of all, the self-doubts. So a particular type of thinking that is colored, strongly colored and influenced by the predominant mental state of uh, doubt. Now, later on in the practice, we may find uh, or we may come across so-called fear-related thoughts. Now, a fear can be of uh, different kinds. It can be an ordinary, mundane type of fear. Uh, so being afraid of something that might happen in the future. And uh, the other type of fear is uh, a dhamma fear. And uh, that has to do uh, with seeing uh, objects in a certain way. And and then, again with further practice, a meditator may find that his or her thoughts become uh, more of a despairing or or assume somewhat a despairing quality. And this too then is very much influenced or governed by the insight knowledge. Then, upon further practice, a meditator finds that he or she feels disgusted with just about everything. So, disgusting or thoughts of disgust arise. And even the most nicely nicely prepared food at this point uh, appears to be uh, rather uh, unattractive and uh, not uh, that appealing. And then then we find, uh, again, a further development, namely that the thinking turns into random thinking. So the mind thinks a little bit on this topic, then it's off uh, to another topic, and then again it's on something else, again it's on something else, and so on and so forth. So the mind is really hopping from one object, from one topic to the next, flitting from one topic to the next. And... However, this will not last uh, forever, and um, then the thinking becomes somewhat more organized, and uh, it then could be described as Dhamma reflections. So at that point, a meditator's thoughts are concerned mostly with profound, with an intellectual um, profound understanding of uh, uh, certain aspects of the Dhamma. So it seems that one is understanding something that previously one hadn't uh, understood uh, that uh, well. Maybe uh, something related to the Four Noble Truths or uh, the Eightfold Noble Path and so on. Now, and then, in the knowledge of equanimity about formations, the thinking then uh, fortunately decreases. And as the mindfulness becomes extremely sharp, it manages to pick up even the 
unfolding of, uh, of a thought. So the, f- the thought hasn't even fully formed, and the mindfulness is right there. And uh, you know, just you know, through the power of the mindfulness, even without labeling, the thought dispel- or disappears on the spot. And so then there is one place of no thought, and one place or one condition. And where is this? Nibbana, yes, indeed. So, after having dealt with thoughts for days on end, finally, when the experience of Nibbana takes place, you are relieved of uh, the oppression through thoughts. Now, Closely connected, well, before going further, there's still yet another category of uh, thinking that uh, the Buddha described uh, himself, namely sensuous thinking, kama vitaka, then byabhada vitaka, which which are hateful thoughts, and then himsa or vihimsa vitaka, which are thoughts of cruelty. So these are thoughts that are governed by greed, and the second and third one are clearly governed by or are a form of ill will. And the opposites Opposites of these three also are mentioned by the Buddha, and they are given as thoughts of renunciation, nekama, vitaka, and then thoughts of non-hatred, namely abhyabhada, vitaka, and then thoughts of non-cruelty, of not harming, which are given in Pani as avihimsa, So the Buddha described uh, various certain kinds of thoughts by using uh, these certain six uh, terms. And so they may also help us for uh, our, um, well, investigation of different kinds of uh, thoughts. Can you think of still some other kind of uh, thinking, predominant thinking that occurs in the practice? Pride and concede, uh, yes. Well, well, you know, what your answer is pointing to is, in the end, any of uh, you know, the mental you know, states or mental factors will you know, influence or color our you know, thinking. So, if pride is the predominant mental factor, then you know, the thoughts will be of a you know, conceited nature, and uh, if maybe. Um, maybe humility. Well, yeah. If uh, you know, humility is there, you know, then you know, the thoughts will be more along that certain uh, line of uh, you know, humility. Fantasizing. Fantasizing. Oh, fantasizing. Yes, uh, yes indeed. And so, uh, this to the fantasizing may be influenced by you know, certain unwholesome mental states.
fantasizing, imagining, and so, uh, so on. Well, now, one of the mental factors that certainly uh, strongly contributes to you know, the thinking is restlessness itself, Uddhacca in the Pali scripture language, and its characteristic is given as uh, that of disquietude of uh, the mind. And certainly the illustration given for this is you know, a mind that is, uh, um, or uh, water that is whipped up uh, by uh, wind. So a mind uh, you know, that uh, is certainly governed by you know, restlessness will be whipped up uh, by it. And the function of uh, restlessness is uh, to make the mind unsteady. And uh, what this means is that, uh, um, you know, well, the opposite also uh, must exist. So at times the mind is steady and in the presence of, uh, um, of restlessness it's uh, unsteady. And beginning meditators oftentimes have no notion of... Uh, um, or no, no idea of the extent of uh, you know, this unsteady, disquiet uh, mind, agitated mind. And it's only when a meditator through practice has uh, um, gained or, or experienced the mental state of calmness, basadi, that um, you know, one sees what actually is possible, how you know, calm and certainly still the mind certainly can actually you know, become. And the manifestation of restlessness is given as turmoil, and uh, this very nicely you know, describes a state or the, the state of mind uh, that is certainly governed uh, by uh, restlessness. And it's surely not a peaceful state um, to be in. And the nearest cause for the arising of restlessness is given as unwise attention. But just saying unwise attention, you may still not uh, understand what is meant by this. And uh, the unwise attention to the presence of, uh, or uh, unwise attention to mental disquiet, thinking that it's quite okay to leave the mind like this. Uh, in this uh, well, unsteady uh, state. And uh, as a result of this, we don't do anything about it, and uh, then uh, restlessness uh, arises. And so restlessness uh, arises together with uh, delusion, and uh, it is one of the you know, four um, universal unwholesome mental states, which means uh, where whenever unwholesome an unwholesome mental state will be present in the mind, you know, these f uh, uh, these two, namely restlessness and uh, delusion, plus a lack of shame and a lack of uh, or fearlessness of wrongdoing, these four you know, will be present. Now, the Buddha himself, uh, when speaking of thinking, has uh, um, mentioned uh, vitaka, and vitaka usually 
you know, translates as the initial application of the mind. And so, you know, this is a term uh, you know, which is used in the context of uh, the jhana practice, the absorptions. Um, however, in the context of uh, you know, the Eightfold Noble Path, we have uh, the second path factor given as uh, you know, Samasankapa, right thought, and that right thought and Vitaka uh, are you know, identical. So there it's known as uh, uh, right thought. And in the meditation, in the Vipassana meditation practice, you know, the you know, Venerable you know, Sadhupandita likes to translate certain Vitaka as aiming, namely aiming the mind uh, onto you know, the object of uh, no observation. So the term you Vitaka know, can be translated as a thought, as thinking, as reflection, initial uh, application of the mind, or even as uh, the aiming. Now, under which circumstances does wandering mind occur? Have you noticed uh, anything? When there is greed, when there is aversion, yes. Sloth and torpor, yes. And by me, lack of concentration, yes. Okay, very good. Eh? Boredom, yes. Anything else? Fear, yes, yes. Ah, lack of mindfulness, yes, is correct. And you're mentioning already a number of the relevant conditions. Now, in addition to what you've said, frequently it can be observed that a wandering mind occurs when an object of uh, observation is somewhat vague, somewhat unclear, or somewhat indiscernible. And what happens at this point is that the object is not, you know, not that clear, and hence the mind has nothing you know, tangible to hold on to. And what does it do? Well, it goes off into thinking. And this particular condition occurs at several or at different places in you know, the meditation practice. And I'm thinking of one particular place in the you know, third, latter, or the uh, later part of the third insight knowledge where things are getting uh, quite refined. And at that point, it's very common to hear meditators say that the wandering mind is increasing. And so knowing this, one should be careful when, when an object becomes somewhat indistinct, then maybe better go and change one's attention to some other object. And so then, 
another condition that may lead to you know, the arising of you know, wandering mind is uh, you know, that of weak effort. So if you're just hanging in there and uh, uh, taking it easy and uh, in a casual manner, observing the rising, oh, rising is rising, falling is falling, and so on, <laughs> then, you know, then you know, no wonder you know, the wandering mind will come in. And so then when observing the rising fawning movement of the abdomen, is there any particular point uh, where the wandering mind tends to uh, arise? In the, huh? in the middle. In the middle, middle between what? Okay, very good, uh, indeed. Yeah, between the pause, between the rise and fall, but also yeah, in the pause between the fall and the next uh, uh, rising. So, please remember this uh, for your own practice. And uh, when there is, especially when there's a longer pause between the rising and the falling, or the falling and the next rising, and then yeah, be on guard and don't let your mind uh, uh, wander off. And if it wants to you know, wander off, then immediately uh, catch it and uh, label it, observe it, and let uh, go of it. Now, in the walking meditation, let's say we're doing the three-phase walking meditation, lifting, moving, and placing, is there any particular you know, phase or point where you know, the mind tends to wander off? Who knows? Uh, yes, that will be one place. Okay, good. And furthermore? Turning around. Turning around, yes, okay. And on top of this? Well, during the transitions, during the transition you know, from the lifting process to you know, the forward movement, and then comes the end of the you know, gliding phase, or the forward movement, and then the transition to the lowering process. It is during those you know, few transition, transitions that the mind tends to wander off. So, um, please you know, do check whether this is, uh, or whether this really corresponds with your own uh, practice. So just uh, for the time being, just take it as a hypothesis and uh, then see for yourself whether it's true or not. And then in the connection of weak effort, there is a sequence that is quite common, namely effort is somewhat weak and then the thinking occurs and at first it's just mild new thinking, and then gradually one gets lost in the thinking, it becomes daydreaming, and soon after this one you know, finds oneself doing what? Quitting. Hmm? Quitting. <laughs> Quitting. Yes, either this or before this, nodding. So. You know, usually daydreaming, if one is not careful, you know, leads uh, to you know, sloth and torpor. One form or another of you know, sloth and torpor. So uh, keep this also, this sequence also in mind and uh, to make sure that you don't uh, you know, fall you know, prey to it. It happens you know, more easily than you know, one thinks.
And when you find that your effort is somewhat weak and your mind is happily going into thinking, then all and on top of these related condition is everything is so nice and calm. The mind is calm and it's pleasant to be in that calm state and then easily you know, it leads to thinking. The thinking leads to, you know, to um, well, daydreaming and the daydreaming you know, then leads to sloth and torpor. So um, in this kind of a, you know, case, try to keep your mind active. Revitalize it, energize it and so to move it around. And if uh, the observation of the rising and falling is not enough, then, you know, well, observe rising, falling, sitting, touching. You could even observe several touch points in a row. Now, what else is there to say? The venerable side of Upandita has uh, once answered uh, a question on wandering mind, on wandering mind, in a, in a very profound manner. Namely, he said, the thoughts that we know are few. The thoughts that we don't know are many. And um, in particular, you know, during the beginning phase of our you know, meditation practice, as the mindfulness is still somewhat weak, we, uh, we realize or we are aware only of the tip of the iceberg of thoughts. And we're not really aware of many, many tiny little thoughts uh, that uh, are occurring in you know, the stream of uh, consciousness. Now, actually what happens at the beginning of uh, one's retreat, well, some amount of uh, wandering mind occurs, and, so, and then, um, and then gradually, you know, once as one's mindfulness is improving, the wandering mind then gradually decreases, and then, after a while, a meditator notices that there's even more wandering mind than before, huh? My practice is not improving; it's de or it's uh, uh, well digressing. And the explanation for this particular situation is that what has changed is the mindfulness. The mindfulness has improved, and as a result of this, one notices now even more wandering mind. So, initially, one saw only the tip of the iceberg. In terms of you know, wandering mind, now you know, one sees suddenly some more you know, that is certainly kind of underlying it. And see, when one's mindfulness then gets sharper and sharper and sharper, one um, and the mind is so tuned into the present moment, this is when one can pick up even the tiny little thoughts. And then one realizes how much thinking is actually going on. And you can imagine that an arahant whose mindfulness must be superb will, um, or, or someone who's close 
to to arahantship uh, will detect even more subtle forms of thinking that to us are not even noticeable. So, with improvement in mindfulness, we also then gain access to more and more refined forms of thinking. Now, with regard to thoughts, it easily happens, in particular if it is an emotionally charged thought, that we get involved in it. That we take it personal and then that we identify with it. We think it's a reality. This is really what is happening. And then we drown in uh, this certain uh, thought. And so this then leads to lots of unnecessary suffering. So as a meditator, we're you know, well advised to um, observe uh, thoughts with lots of uh, detachment. The more we can detach ourselves you know, from thoughts, you know, the better, the less we will suffer. And in this context, it's also helpful to remember that the thought is in the end just another mental state coming and going. There's no substantiality to the whole thing. A thought in the end is just like a soap bubble. It forms, it pops. Now, as non-meditators or beginning meditators, frequently we find that a particular thought arises in the stream of consciousness. It seems somewhat fascinating, and then uh, we get hooked into it. And so we attach much importance to it. And we think, yes, we need to continue thinking along this line. There are some more you know, things that need to be worked out. And so, um, to give you an, an example for this, in Lumbini we've had at least by now you know, two meditators who were both carpenters by profession, and while sitting happily and peacefully in meditation, they used their time to invent you know, carpentry tools that so far has no, no one has uh, uh, ever invented. Now, this is one way of using one's time. And I suppose in both cases, they were rather reluctant to give up uh, the thinking. Now, if as a meditator, one keeps observing or encountering thoughts over and over and over again, not just for one day, not just for five days or ten days, but several months in a row, gradually, you know, do you appreciate, do you learn to appreciate your thoughts even more, or you know, do you <laughs> get sick and tired of them? <laughs> one learns to, you know, well, see through them and so, you know, one realizes that after all, they're not all that important. And 
um, we also then learn that we don't have to act on every thought that arises. And please remember, this is really important. Now, many people, you know, especially non-meditators, some thought crops up in the mind and immediately they think they need to act on it. Immediately they think they need to get up and, uh, um, and then you know, get into action. There is no need for this, at least not right away. And uh, as meditators, we are well advised to at least, before we act on a thought, you know, to you know, briefly you know, kind of step back and reflect on it. Is this thought really all that useful? Is it, uh, is it beneficial? Is it suitable? And if yes, okay, then we'll do something about it. But if not, then we just let it pass and that's it. No action is uh, needed. And actually, you know, there are many thoughts that we don't need to act on at all. And then um, there are you know, meditators around who uh, have a, a very particular you know, inclination, namely towards thinking. And so they can't live without thinking. So every sitting of the day needs to be spent in thinking. And I've had uh, the meditators report uh, during interviews uh, saying that I'm just uh, uh, very much uh, attached to you know, the thinking. You know, some even say there's a desire to you know, think. And uh, uh, with, this, uh, with uh, such kind of meditators, it's really hard. And you tell them, please let go of your thinking. Oh, they won't do this. That's the least they'll let go of. And so they might even get upset with this kind of an advice to let the thinking go. Now, further aspects regarding the thinking is that between concentration and restlessness or thinking. So the more thinking or wandering mind takes place, the more the mind is distracted, the less it will be concentrated. And the opposite also holds true. So the fewer the thoughts arising, are, uh, the fewer the thoughts that arise in the mind, the more concentrated will the mind uh, be. So overall, our you know, goal in the meditation practice should be to well, be mindful of the arising thoughts and then to observe them and then once we know the nature of a thought to let go of the respective thought. So, this contemplation, this mindful contemplation of wandering mind comes under which satipatthana? under the contemplation of the body, or of feelings, or of the mind, or of dhammas. What do you think? Dhammas? The mind. Yes, here's the right answer. And in particular because it is certainly connected with a number of, or maybe connected with a number of uh, different mental factors. 
And uh, so whenever wandering mind arises in the stream of consciousness, then we you know, should try to be mindful of it as quickly as possible and not just five minutes later. And so then we should try to know its nature, such as how the thinking may agitate the mind, how it leads to the turmoil in the mind. And then, um, and then we might explore yet another aspect, namely how an unwholesome thought causes, may cause some reaction in the body, or it may even cause a reaction in the mind, and how a wholesome thought may cause a reaction again in the body or and or in the mind. And when observing some wandering mind, then we should try to do so, as explained yesterday when talking about uh, the different qualities of mindfulness with a calm and uh, detached attitude of mind and not getting caught up in the content of uh, the thoughts. So to say this uh, differently, however interesting or intriguing a thought may be, the content of a thought may be, don't get carried away by it. Just see a thought as a mental event and a mental object, it's coming and going, and that's uh, all. And so, if, however, our, if, however, you know, the mindfulness of uh, you know, a thought does not uh, you know, work, and some, well, we're knowing the nature of it, but the thought simply keeps and keeps on going. Then we may resort you know, to five other measures. But before giving those, let me add two more you know, points, namely that as you know, as a meditator. In particular, you know, with uh, this setup here with the um, regular interviews, there is a tendency among meditators to comment on what is happening, to comment on what one is certainly currently observing. Like, oh, now the rising is uh, you know, getting tenser, oh, now it's uh, now ten- and tightness is there, and so on and so forth. Now, this does not qualify as wandering mind because it is clearly related to the object uh, that one is uh, observing. However, if one is observing an object like a pain and the mind goes off uh, thinking about something totally unrelated, this uh, qualifies as wandering mind. And and this then we should try to dispel as quickly as possible. Now, some uninformed meditators um, are under the wrongful impression that Vipassana meditation is, or the goal of Vipassana meditation is to uh, have a mind free of thoughts. And what do you think? Is this realistic? Uh, it's not realistic at all. And this wrong 
misunderstanding may actually create a lot of suffering you know, to you know, the possessor of such a you know, view. And so it is, you know, as you know from your own practice, it is almost impossible you know, to have no thoughts for an extended period of time you know, during Vipassana meditation. It is only you know, during you know, the fourth insight knowledge and the eleventh insight knowledge where mindfulness is extremely sharp, you know, that you know, for you know, periods you know, there's relatively little you know, wandering mind going on. So um, don't fall, you know, don't uh, you know, um, think that uh, the past or that you should achieve a state of no you know, thinking at all. Now, the five five other ways of uh, overcoming um, you know, thoughts are given in the Majjhima Nikaya and the so-called Vitaka Santana Sutta. It's the 20th uh, Sutta from the Middle Length uh, Discourses. And um, I'll just give you the gist of uh, you know, those five measures. Namely, the Buddha recommends to give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. Now, this is said with regard to some unwholesome thought uh, occurring. So, let's say some uh, greedy thought is there, or sensuous thought is there. And a sensuous thought regarding an animate object, so some other being, human being. And the Buddha recommends, as the other sign, to do the contemplation of foulness. So you see this other being as certain as foul, as certain impure, as loathsome. And then, uh, secondly, when there are sensual thoughts regarding some inanimate matter, then one should use as the other sign you know, the contemplation of uh, uh, impermanence, namely that this object too is going to you know, change and it's not going to last. Now, when unwholesome thoughts rooted in hatred arise, so hating thoughts, then the you know, opposing or the antidote you know, to this would be in the case of an animate object or being, the thoughts of loving-kindness. So by thoughts of loving-kindness, we replace the hateful thoughts and uh, a contemplation of uh, the four primary elements would be the antidote to um, hateful thoughts related to some inanimate object. And in the case of delusion, the Buddha recommends to be under a teacher, to study you know, the scriptures, and uh, to inquire into you know, the meaning of it, and to listen to the Dhamma, and, so, and that's about it. Or, and also you know, to inquire into the causes of uh, you know, the Dhamma. And so, then the second method or way of overcoming you know, distracting thoughts is given as examining the danger in those thoughts. And here again, uh, we're speaking of unwholesome thoughts. 
Now, when unwholesome thoughts uh, arise, uh, they tend to be, uh, well, um, reprehensible and unworthy and leading to suffering. And in a general sense, we can say uh, that all unwholesome mental states, uh, the mental defilements, the kilesas, are tormenting the mind, they are burning the mind, and, and so they're leading the mind to a depraved state. And so, so seeing the you know, dangers in you know, certain unwholesome thoughts, it will be uh, easier to let go of them. The third way of overcoming distracting you know, thoughts uh, is, as mentioned by the Buddha, to simply forget those uh, thoughts and you know, not to give attention to them. So you simply ignore them and uh, you focus on something else. And that is a valid approach that certainly may you know, work quite well. And um, you, know, you, let's say, if uh, you know, some pain is present somewhere in the body, you know, then simply you know, focus your entire attention on the pain. The pain is usually strong, or it may be strong, and it you know, draws uh, your attention, and uh, it will draw the attention away you know, from uh, the thinking. And then the Buddha recommends as a fourth way of overcoming distracting thoughts, namely to give attention to the stopping the cause of those thoughts. Now, this is somewhat um, a somewhat critical um, point here. Namely, in the context of Satipatthana meditation, we are usually not uh, encouraged to now go into long reflections or long analysis, why am I having these uh, thoughts? So it should not be a door or an opening you know, to you know, psychoanalysis. And certainly in the sense like, oh, well, I'm having these you know, thoughts about loneliness. Maybe as a child I was so lonely. <laughs> no. So... Um, if there is some obvious cause, okay, then recognize this, and uh, maybe you know, the recognition of it, uh, it may uh, help. And then finally, the Buddha you know, recommends that if none of the first four you know, ways you know, mentioned helps uh, you as a meditator to overcome. Sorry, these distracting thoughts, then simply do the following. Namely, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, namely the, the palate, and a meditator beats down, constraints, and crushes mind with mind. And so, so then you use a powerful, as a last resort, you, know, you use a very powerful method. And you know, to crush mind with mind, this you know, refers to crushing the unwholesome thoughts with wholesome mental states. And so, and so you kind of drive away those unwholesome mental states and then forcefully you know, you're thinking wholesome you know, thoughts. Now, 
let me conclude today's demo talk on, um, uh, well, mostly you know, the contemplation, mindful contemplation of uh, a wandering mind you know, with Dhammapada verse 326, where it says, in the past, this mind has wandered as it liked, wherever it liked, at its own pleasure. Now, I will control my mind wisely as a mahout with his or her goad controls an elephant in must. And at the end of the Vitakasantana Sutta, the you know, discourse on the removal of distracting thoughts, you know, the Buddha says um, one should strive to you know, become a master of one's thoughts, one you know, thinking the thoughts that one wants to think and not thinking the thoughts that one you know, does not want to think. And this uh, quality or this um, well level is achieved only with the attainment of arahantships. So, arahantship. So let me conclude the talk by wishing that may we all in the end become masters of our you know, thoughts and uh, by carefully observing them again and again when they do arise and by gradually becoming more skilled at overcoming you know, these uh, thoughts and may gradually more and more wholesome thoughts take you know, the place of unwholesome you know, thoughts and uh, in the end may we attain uh, well, the last and final path of enlightenment. And this is it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.